Gresham College presents Sex, Death and Witchcraft What Goes On in the Family Courtroom by Professor Joe Delahunty, QC. Well, hello everyone. I hope that what I go through in this opening lecture will be sufficient of a teaser to see some of you back for the subsequent ones I intend to deliver. My motivation in taking on this professorship was effectively to shine a a light on the workings of the family justice system, which too often is described as secret and remote. And my intention is to effectively open the doors of the courtroom and walk you through to discuss with you some of the issues that family courts deal with in every um, court in the land, high and low, day in, day out, so that we can have an informed debate because otherwise what you know about the workings of the family justice system too often is reduced to sound pipes in a newspaper or what you learn on social media. So this, opening, this introductory lecture was really to give you the groundings in what we do in the family justice system, to talk to you about the legal framework in which we operate and why we have a legal framework there at all, which can involve the removal of children from their homes. Because unless I do that now and give you some, the basic skeleton of what we do, then the lectures that follow, which pick up individual themes, really won't be grounded in an understanding about the limitations of the world in which we operate, as well as the huge depth of knowledge that is explored within it. So um, the title was specifically designed, because as a barrister, I, I excel in the art of manipulation, um, to get you interested and engaged. And it's called Sex, Death and Witchcraft, I'll be going through some of those themes in brief as I open up this lecture. Um, But essentially, I want to introduce you to some of the issues, some of the things we do, which are amongst the most gripping, complex and demanding of cases that cross the barriers of the courtroom. Um, I do so from the perspective of having been a barrister for 30 years, a silk for 10 years, and being very proud indeed to be a legal aid barrister, because that's the work I specialise in. I operate in the field of law that deals with child abuse. And that can be a field, I think, where there is nothing greater than making sure that every party has equal representation. So everything I now say comes from my mouth. I prize my independence greatly. I'm not accountable to the Lord Chancellor, um, to the chambers I work in, or indeed to my family who sit in the front row and no doubt will be my biggest critics after I have completed the lecture. So uh, I'm going to start, please, if I may, by introducing you to the concept of um, crime and civil law and to describe what I do as a lawyer. I mean, you may ask the question, uh, if you're a solicitor or a barrister, what's the difference between you? And that's a very good question. Why should you know the difference? So are we just lawyers? Let me see, I'll go on to that one in a minute. I did warn you, technology was really, really poor. My grasp of the law is certainly better than this PowerPoint presentation. So, solicitor or a barrister, what's the difference? What do you do? A solicitor is effectively on the front line of any dealings between the public, the client and the courts. They're the people that take the client in. They're the interface between the client and the opposing uh, sides, and they're the people who have the most dealings in terms of administration and organisation of the case with with the courtroom scenario. But when the case gets complex and they need specialist legal advice and legal representation, including advocacy and advice on the law, then they call in a barrister. And a barrister, when the case gets particularly complex, 
may want to secure the services of someone like me, AQC. But we are only engaged in a tiny proportion of the cases that go on in the country um, over the course of the year. The case has to be exceptionally complex, both in law and fact, with serious consequences for the family and potentially leading to a change in the law for me to be instructed, because I am paid for through your taxes. I am paid for through the legal aid agency who have to be convinced that it's worth funding someone like me to come into a case. So it's from that perspective that I give my talk to you. If you're thinking of an analogy about how barristers and solicitors and silks work, then think about it in terms of going into your GP surgery, whose uh, the GP has so much breadth of knowledge that very rarely will you need to go beyond that scope. But when you do, you're sent off to the hospital where you may see junior or senior consultants. And when you hit a particular problem with some of your biology, then you get sent off to specialist consultants and professors. So if you think of that as the solicitor, then uh, referring the matter up to a barrister, which can be either senior or junior, and then they refer it up to someone like me. That gives you an idea about the scale and the way in which we operate. But we always work as a team. Um, there is no such instance where we don't deal with one another, and I always take my instructions through the solicitor, through the client. I don't see the client directly, unlike the, unlike the solicitor. So that's our way of operating. Uh, the other thing uh, to now deal with is effectively a, a, an understanding of what crime and civil law is. So if we move on to this issue here, very often people don't understand the distinction between criminal law and civil law, and it's a fundamental difference that needs to be understood so that you can then understand why sometimes criminal courts and family courts come to different outcomes. The principal difference is that we operate under two different standards of proof. So in criminal law, um, a case will have to be determined beyond all reasonable doubt, and in civil law, you're going to determine the case on the balance of probabilities. Family law is a branch of civil law, and family law it can be divided into public law and uh, uh, private law, and I'll go into that in a moment. But the thing to bear in mind is that in criminal courts you only focus on the past in order to have an outcome in relation to that past event. In a family court, you look at the past only to identify a problem. And then based on your understanding of that problem, then you project into the future to make plans for a child. So the family division is a forward-looking division, whereas the criminal division is a backwards-looking forum. I hope that might help draw some distinction. In practical terms... It's difficult to grasp the difference until, effectively, you see how the same instance, the same case, the same family um, can come to such different outcomes in two different jurisdictions. So I'm going to give you an illustration, and it concerns the death of a little baby called Kai. And essentially, the background was this. In 2011, after just 13 days at home, six-week-old baby Kai died. He was discovered by his mother in a baby basket and a post-mortem revealed that he sustained a catastrophic head injury at the time of his death and a lesser brain injury two or three days earlier. Kai had a sibling and she was temporarily removed from home to live with an aunt and at the time of the investigation it was thought that Kai's death was not suspicious so she returned home and life continued as normal for that family. But there became a reinvestigation was opened, and that investigation revealed some concerning circumstances around Kai's death, as a result of which the local authority brought the matter back to court. 
and were able to telejudge what the new evidence was, leading to the fact that A, Kai's sibling, was removed into care and she remained in care while the family court heard about the circumstances of Kai's death. They needed to learn about that to understand whether or not Kai's sister needed protection from anyone within the home, which would have been the case if Kai had met his death at the hands of one of them. And then we come to the different outcomes. Um, because what happened in 2014 in London was that Mr Justice Peter Jackson found that the injuries that Kai has sustained were non-accidental in origin and that the father was responsible for them. And this is what he had to say. On the first occasion, the father shook Kai in a matter, manner clearly inappropriate for such a young baby. On the second, the father struck Kai's head against a hard surface with enough violence to fracture his skull and cause fatal brain injuries. He realised that Kai had been hurt, but instead of seeking help, he put him in his Moses basket in the bedroom, hoping all would be well and determined to conceal what he had done. Kai died as a result. Now, that decision was by the family division in 2014, but it wasn't made known to the jury, who then went on to hear the same case where uh, the father, Mr Craig Beattie, was charged with manslaughter in 2015. And in Liverpool, by a jury, Mr Craig Beattie was um, found not guilty. That led to a foray in the papers to understand why it could be that two different courts in two different jurisdictions, in two different areas of the country, had looked at the same facts in relation to the same baby and the same accused and come to such fundamentally different outcomes. And I bring that to attention because it enables me to tell you why you can have different outcomes then as indeed now in these two jurisdictions. So it's a prosecution between the Queen and the defendant, the defendant being Mr Beattie. There are different rules of evidence. The um, criminal jurisdiction has much tighter rules of evidence. Hearsay, for example, is not admitted. And when there are arguments of law, the jury are sent out. The press and public are allowed into every criminal court in the land, and you're, that's an indication of the fact it's heard in public, and that's why you see barristers wearing wigs and gowns. The jury is in charge of the fact. The judge is in charge of the law. But the jury has absolute responsibility over the verdict that's delivered, and the verdict is delivered on the basis of beyond reasonable doubt. Are you satisfied so as to be sure? And the burden is on the prosecution to prove their case. The outcome is guilty or not guilty, and if the defendant is found guilty, it's the judge that determines the sentence. Compare that to the family division. The case in that instance is between the state in the form of a local authority against um, the parent, and in this instance, not simply Mr Beattie, the father, but also his wife. And it also involves the child. A little-known fact that should be greater known is that in any family case, the child is separately represented. They have their own bank of solicitors, and they have a case that can be argued independent of anything that the family have to say and independent of what the local authority um, have to say, and long may that continue. The evidence that we can admit in care cases is far wider. We're allowed hearsay in. Um, we, if we get experts' reports, have to disclose the outcomes, even if they're unfavourable to our client. The public are not admitted into our courts, and that's because we need to preserve the anonymity of the children whose futures are being debated within it. The press can come in, but there are restrictions on what they can report during the trial and after, which is why you get accusations that we're hearing cases in secret. We don't wear wigs and gowns, and that's a natural corollary from the fact that we're hearing cases in private. 
I don't like wearing a wig and gown, and I do if I go in the high courts, because I think that makes us different. And as barristers, we aren't different. We are there performing a function, and as soon as I put a wig and gown on, that's an immediate barrier between me and my client. And my clients have seen too many suits to want to see another one, this time dressed up in 18th century costume. In our cases, there is no jury. The judge decides everything. He's in absolute charge of the fact, and he applies the facts to the law, and he will resolve the case on the balance of probabilities. And that's because the child's welfare is paramount. The judge makes the orders, which may be um, either the child can return home, or if not, he'll deal with issues such as adoption and fostering. So that's a basic run-through on what the difference is between care and crime. Um, And I've mentioned public and private family law. And I'd like, if I may, to tell you what the difference is between those two types. If I ask and throw the word family into this hallway and ask what comes to mind, if you're in a good mood, you'll think love, attention, affection, loyalty. If you're in a bad mood, you'll be thinking separation, divorce, and arguments. What you may not think about is a situation where the argument isn't between parent and parent, but it's an argument between the state and the family with the child at the centre of the argument. Because these are the cases that involve concerns that the child is at risk of harm within the family home, no longer protected by its parents, but at risk for them. And in those situations, the state intervenes and brings court proceedings, and that's public law. So that's the area of work I work in. I've already indicated um, about the burden of proof. When I go on to talk about what happens in public law, there are three tenets that you need to keep hold fast of. The first is the burden of proof, the second, standard of proof, and the third is the circumstances that can lead to a removal of a child where a threshold has to be crossed for that decision to be made by the judge. It's not the case that social workers can simply turn up at a parent's home and remove a child. It may feel that way because the proceedings may pass very, very quickly indeed. But the social worker doesn't have the power to do that. All they have the power to do, if they are concerned, is to put the evidence together and to take the matter to court. But it's the court that decides if a child is safe to remain at home or if it should be removed. And that doesn't happen and shouldn't happen if proper process is followed without notice being given to the parents about what has happened and without an opportunity for the child to be represented. The judge will only um, agree that a child should be removed from their home if he is satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to believe that child is not safe in there and there's no one who can protect the child if they remain. And he'll be considering um, a concept called significant harm, which is worth reading out to you because it is basically the measure against which you judge whether or not a child is at risk within the home or is going to suffer harm within it. So significant harm, this is what it's defined as. Harm means ill treatment or impairment of health and development. And ill treatment covers things like sexual abuse and ill treatment such as physical abuse and emotional abuse. It includes physical and mental health, um, intellectual development, social development and other uh, educational impairments. So it's very, very wide. But that's because it covers everything that a child needs to grow up into a healthy adult. Um, You judge the standard of harm against what would be expected of a reasonable parent, so it's an objective standard. 
So a judge in any care application which involves a removal or requested removal of a child will want to know what evidence the local authority have to suggest a child should be taken away from the parents who invariably love their child and may be doing their best, but nonetheless um, it's not considered safe for the child to remain there. It has to be a situation of nothing else will do. We're not in the family courts in order to um, try to massage a family unit into something that's more acceptable. There is a broad range of parenting, and adequate parenting. A parent simply needs to be good enough. No one can expect any better. And that is why one needs to think very carefully about the evidence that's being produced by the local authority. When the matter first goes to court it can feel very much to parents as though there is a total imbalance of power. They will be faced with evidence from a local authority that's been compiled from social services files over months, years, sometimes decades. You think of the scenario, you have a professional who's independent of the family, they make a telephone call, they're at a desk, when they do so, they make a note. That note stays on file. The parent picks up the call on a mobile phone, it's another suit, they may be on their way to school, they may be on their way to pub, I have no idea. But the one thing they're not going to do is stop and make a note of what's been said and what they've been said. And this history of note-taking starts off with the case at the beginning have a gross imbalance of power because there is an imbalance of knowledge. And if you take into account that the public law clients that I represent are some of the poorest in our society, and by poor I don't just mean in income, I don't just mean in education, but I also mean in expectations. Very few of my clients expect things to turn out right. And when you put that, in those, that type of difficulty in the context of the fact we are talking about their child and their life and their failings, then you can see at the beginning how hard it must be for any parent in that situation to realise there may be a kernel of truth in the concerns that the local authority have. So my job in that situation is to try to gain their trust and to try to rebalance the imbalance of power to make sure that the court makes an informed decision. Um, so um, in one of my future lectures, I'll be exploring what we do when the parent in that scenario is not simply someone who is in a state of panic, but someone who has a disability, a learning disability, a mental health disability, maybe blind, maybe deaf, because in those situations, there's even more efforts we need to go to to make sure that the scales of justice are properly rebalanced. I've talked about significant harm um, in a little while, and I think what I'd like to do is just to explain to you how the law has to be a living organism if it is going to do justice to the society it seeks to serve. Although I've read out that definition of significant harm, and that came from a 1989 Act, it has to change to be interpreted in light of what goes on in our society now. So, for example, a decade ago, you may not have thought it conceivable that a mother would make her baby available for a pop star to penetrate and sexually abuse. That simply may not have been something you thought someone could conceivably do. A few years ago, you may not have thought that female genital mutilation was an issue that even troubled us within our society because it was so hidden and underground. But that's now coming to light and um, acts have been passed in order to prohibit it, but that's something we deal with in family courts. And if we are going to have any type of definition that explains to you the type of issues that we deal with in the family court, I think this quote is probably as good as I can get. 
It comes from Mr Justice Hayden, who's a judge of the Family Division, and he had this to say about the type of issues that we deal with. The family court system, particularly the Family Division, is and always has been, in my view, in the vanguard of change in life and society. Where there are changes in medicine and in technology or cultural change, so often they resonate first within the family. Here, the type of harm I've been asked to evaluate is a different facet of vulnerability for children than that which the courts have had to deal with in the past. What was he talking about? He was talking about radicalisation cases. He was talking about ISIS. Because 18 months ago, we had yet to have the bedrock of our society shaken by the concept that young girls from loving homes could leave as a trio to try to travel abroad to become jihadi brides a destination that was only discovered by the families as they reported them missing and saw them on the security cameras. Those three girls, two of whom remained there, one believed dead, were not the first that had sought to follow that path, nor will they be the last. Um, there will be many more that seek to do so, and uh, others have tried to follow. These are the type of cases now that the family division is dealing with on a regular basis. So it's an illustration of how the law has to adapt in order to deal with the changes and demands of society. When any of these cases come to court, the judge has a heavy responsibility. The judge has to decide if a child has been harmed or is at risk of harm in its family, who poses a risk to them, and if they are at risk, if there's anyone there that can protect them. He has to decide if it's safe for the child to remain or return to their family or part of it, and if it's not safe to them to remain, then there has to be a decision about what the best chance for that child is. Do they then need a permanent substitute family? And is that family going to be a foster family or is it going to be adoption? That means the stakes are incredibly high. If a child isn't removed and kept safe and is returned to a family with the prospects of rehabilitation but then suffers further harm and dies, there can be no greater tragedy. If a child is removed and placed for adoption, and in this country we have closed adoptions, which means that they, it's not simply the legal relationship between child and parent that is severed, but all contact is terminated. And that decision is lifelong and goes through generation after generation. There is no way back. And so I turn to a quote of the President of the Family Division just to illustrate how grave a decision it is that the courts are asked to make in that situation. With the state's abandonment of the right to impose capital sentences, orders of the kind which family judges are typically invited to make in public law proceedings are amongst the most drastic that any judge in any jurisdiction is ever empowered to make. When a judge makes placement order or an adoption order in relation to a 20-year-old mother's baby, the mother will have to live with the consequences of that decision for what may be upwards of 60 or even 70 years. And the baby may be upwards of 80 or even 90. Now, this isn't the place to guide you through whether we do or don't make the right decisions in the family division, but that's there to illustrate the weight of responsibility that is borne by those who deal with these cases in court. What I'd like to do now is just to give you a sort of smorgasbord of some of the issues that we deal with in the family division. So you get an idea about the range of issues that have to uh, be dealt with by any one of my colleagues and myself. Each subject area is hugely complex, so this can be nothing more than a thumbnail sketch. And each area 
will have individual cases uh, where the families and the children are entirely unique. So every case has to be determined on its facts. But what you need to do, and I'd ask you to do, is just expand your mind about what we do in the family division. Geography. What do we do that could possibly impact upon geography in the family division? Well, think about unaccompanied minors coming to the United Kingdom and then abandoned. They need to be cared and looked after. Think about child slavery. A nephew brought to this country who is kept silent and invisible from health and education services, effectively to be used within the home as a slave for a family and whipped and abused as such. Think of miracle babies, um, desperate parents going to Nigeria and being told that by miraculous treatment they've been able to conceive and then they are delivered of a child which they bring back to the United Kingdom where DNA then reveals it not to be a child and then later discovered to be produced for them by um, illicit means in Nigeria. How does the court resolve these issues of jurisdiction? What happens if there's a border dispute? What happens if there's a disagreement about whether a child has been abducted from our jurisdiction or to our jurisdiction? What type of working relationship do we have with, uh, with courts in foreign jurisdictions? Are we cooperative or are we competitive? These are all the issues that one needs to think about in the family division law. And when you think of international law, you might think of Brussels and trade. But in fact, international law is the bedrock of our family justice system because our world is big and UK's shores are forever fluid. Think about cultures. We live in a diverse cultural community, and amongst its many, many positives, there are some areas of bringing up a child that don't sit easily within our accepted standards of parenting. Without any specific reference to anyone in particular, just think, for example, about the difference between forced marriage and arranged marriage. Arranged marriage is something that our society has tolerated and condoned and encouraged for decades, hundreds of years. You think of the royal dynasties that were created... It's not exactly something UK society has stood in the way of. But forced marriage, we do. It's not only a criminal act, but when we fear that a child is being taken abroad to be put in a situation where they're going to be married against their will, then we in the family division will intervene. And that's because in an arranged marriage, there is an agreement by the two parties to be married through the offices of their parents or a matchmaker, but they're consenting to that liaison. In a forced marriage, there is no agreement. It is a decision imposed upon someone who's vulnerable, if they are a child, or someone who's incapable of giving consent if they have uh, mental health issues or learning disabilities. That's why we intervene. Think about female genital mutilation versus male circumcision. Both of them can involve um, cutting to the genitalia of a male or female baby, but we don't take children away or threaten to take children away because of male circumcision. But we do have serious concerns, and in fact, we'll prohibit any attempt to expose a child to female genital mutilation. And the reason isn't simply in the physical act, it's because there is no justification for female genital mutilation. There's got no basis for it in religion, or medicine, or on health grounds. Whereas circumcision is something which is respected and tolerated by society in equal measures. And that's a difference that it's worthwhile bearing in mind because otherwise on a brief examination you may think that there's no difference between them. Um, what about Kandoki? This is my tagline to get you all in. How many of you know what Kandoki is and why should you? 
Kinzoki is a belief in evil spirits which originates in the Democratic Republic of Congo and it can lead to acts of child abandonment, victimisation and ritual abuse. But it was a tag to draw you in because in fact it's just a very good way of describing an example of a form of faith and belief based child abuse including spirit possession. It means that the child who's a victim of this can be accused of witchcraft, they can be accused of being possessed by spirits, um, they can be subject to ritualised abuse, exorcisms and sadistic abuse. And that can be imposed upon them in a number of ways by beating, burning, whipping, cutting, stabbing, strangulation, imprisonment. It can mean that they are ostracised from their family and their society or it can mean they're targeted by their family or their society. It is difficult to conceive that that goes on within our country, but it does. And it is not confined to any one faith, nationality or ethnic community. Don't believe that it is. Uh, that's an area that we deal with in the family division. Sex. If you think about sex and abuse, you may think about stranger abuse and adoption. Traditionally, you may think about that being an adult male abducting a child. But in the world I work in, that is not the type of world we have to walk through. We deal with situations where the abuse can be intergenerational. Grandfather, father and son. Grandmother, mother, daughter. Intersex, intergenerational, intersibling. Over generations. What do you do in that situation where a child who has been the victim of abuse becomes an abuser themselves by starting to perform the same acts upon a more vulnerable sibling? It's easy enough to decide what to do. It's an adult and a child. But think what you would do in the family division where you're having to make decisions about separation of siblings in that type of scenario. <laughs> What do you do when you have a victim of sexual abuse and the court finds that they have been sexually abused and therefore decides that they should be removed from home? But that child is in their teens and they don't like being in care. It's an alien environment and they have become so used to the experiences within the home that they have normalised their belief, their, their practices, and they vote with their feet. What do you do? I'll talk about that in a future lecture. Politics. The courts are not the guardians of morality. We all have the right to fail as parents. We all have the right to hold beliefs that others may find objectionable. We all have the right to make mistakes. We, our only responsibility of parents is to be good enough. And there can be no better, I think, way of describing the range of reasonable behaviours by a parent that have to trespass into the risk of significant harm to try to identify why we don't intervene in all the cases that sometimes come to your attention in the news. This is what the president of the family division had to say. Many parents are hypochondriacs. Many parents are criminals or benefit sheets. Many parents discriminate against ethnic or sectional minorities. Many parents support vile political parties or belong to unusual or militant religions. All of these follies are visited upon their children who may well adopt or model them in their own lives, but those children could not be removed for those reasons. We are all frail human beings with our fair share of unattractive character traits which sometimes manifest themselves in bad behaviours which may be copied by their children. But the state does not and cannot take away 
children uh, for parents who commit crimes, who abuse alcohol or drugs, who suffer from physical or mental illness or disabilities, or who espouse antisocial, political or religious beliefs, because that's not the court's function. The court's function is only intervene when a child is at risk of harm or has been harmed, not because the state disagrees or condones with the way in which the parents are living their lives. Religion. Radicalisation, I've already mentioned. It is a subject which is increasingly occupying our time. The U in the UK, we protect someone's right to express their beliefs freely so long as they don't harm children or break the law in so doing. But when those beliefs impact upon a child, for example, a child found in a car, stopped and detained at the airport, en route to what is thought to be war-torn Syria, then we intervene to protect that child because otherwise it exposes that child to a risk of very serious or harm or death. It's a war zone. But these type of cases cross a very, very difficult path balancing between the rights that we have that we respect under the Human Rights Act, so a right to freedom of thought, belief and expression, the right of freedom of assembly and association, a respect for your private and family life, and then when I come into play, the right to fair trial and the right to life. It's a complicated area. What about matters scientific? This is one of my pet subjects, so it's, I'm going to be returning to this in a number of lectures to you. Babies die at home in parental care, and the family court has to determine if death comes about through violence or through a benign cause mimicking um, abuse. Science is constantly evolving, and miscarriages of justice we know have happened with parents wrongly accused of shaking their child to death based on scientific research and a hypothesis genuinely held but then later discarded and refined as science develops. We use a concept called the triad in order to try to cast some light on what may have led to the child's death. The triad is essentially a constellation of medical findings looking at bleeding in the brain, bleeding in the eyes and brain dysfunction. Um, it is thought that that type, of that type of injury is caused through a child being shaken through excessive force. You may know these type of cases as shaken babies. I don't like that phrase. I refer to them as non-accidental head injuries or even alleged non-accidental head injuries. What about the cases where a child has so many fractures that the local authority feel that that child has effectively been tortured since birth, with its lips being manipulated and broken by the parents? But then you later find out that that child is not only vitamin D deficient but, deficient, but suffers from rickets. What happens to the parent in that scenario? In one aspect, they are criticised as the torturers of a vulnerable baby. In another, they're the ones that are the victims, being accused of doing something hateful to the child they love. That will be the subject of two of my lectures, uh, including a specific case example uh, in which I was involved. Matters medical. Two cases that you may remember that have come to light. Um, matters of life and death. There was a case before the High Court a couple of years ago which led to the attention of the press because there was a seriously ill child um, whose tumour needed urgent radiotherapy and whilst uh, the medical team was advocating traditional therapy, the mother wanted alternative uh, medicines to be tried. The court was asked to intervene and in that instance decided that radiotherapy was the right answer. What of the parents, though, who believe that life-saving proton beam therapy could save their child without the conventional side effects of conventional radiotherapy, but that's unavailable in the United Kingdom and the treating medical team don't support or propose it? 
what happens in that scenario if the parent, believing they're doing the best for their child, takes the child out of the country, seeking treatment in Hungary? Does the court intervene, arrest the parents, place the child in the nearest hospital, and then require the child to come back to the United Kingdom to continue the medical treatment that the UK doctors ascribe? Or do they explore the science and allow the family and the child to continue to Hungary to get the proton beam therapy? That's the case of Asa King, and you may remember the outcome. The child went to Hungary, the treatment was successful. How does the court decide to intervene in these decisions and what, how does it come to its conclusions, which can be so enormous for the family and the child? They come to the court as an emergency. They will hear medical evidence. The parents will be represented as will be the child. But one can't say by just giving you that list that these are not the most emotive and difficult areas that a court can possibly consider. What happens when a court in the family division is asked to decide whether conjoined twins should be separated? and so by doing, kills one baby, but potentially has the life of saving the other. What do you do when a parent doesn't want the life support system turned off of their child? But the fact doctors say it can't be continued any longer and it's cruel to do. They come to the family division. These are genuinely matters of life and death that we'll deal with within the family division. And I can put it no more profound or stronger than that. So... Closing remarks, child abuse is the stuff of nightmares, but so too is to be wrongly accused of care of shaking, harming, injuring, sexually abusing the child that you love. We no longer live in an age where the child can be treated as a chattel. From the point of birth, a child has its rights to live a life free of being subjected to significant harm of abuse within its family. And that right to be brought up free of significant harm matters more than the right of the parents to care for a child, because the child's welfare trumps everything. As a lawyer, I get involved in these cases and inherit cases from my junior colleagues and from the solicitors who work so hard and tirelessly in order to do right by their clients. Parents can't walk away from a family court unless they walk away from their child. Very few parents ever do that. The bonds our love are too strong for that to happen. However poor a parent they may be, I cannot think of one that hasn't told me genuinely that they love their child. We as barristers don't decide on guilt or innocence. I have an ethical duty that I hold proudly true which means that if I am free and available, and if there is no conflict of interest, I will be instructed and I will take that case on. It's not up to me to refuse a case because I don't like the person, because I don't like what they say, and I don't like what's alleged against them. My job is to represent them because I am not the judge. That's the judge's responsibility to decide if the parent has done the things that they are accused of doing. For someone like me to decide on guilt or innocence when I know nothing other than what I've read in the papers, and for that to affect my performance about whether I act on the instructions and how vigorously I do so, means that my functioning court will be no, long, no more than the fig leaf on justice. And that is not what I came into this practice to do. In any given day, in any given week, I can be dealing with cases that involve alleged shaking of a child. I can be dealing with cases that involve the sexual abuse of a teenager who has mutilated his penis as a result of the abuse that he's been subjected to to try to make it less attractive. 
so that he is no longer abused within the family. In any one case, I can be expected as a lawyer who doesn't have any medical training to cross-examine ophthalmologists, pathologists, neonatologists, neuropathologists, osteopathologists, radiologists, experts in genetics, burns, bites, psychologists and psychiatrists. And I have training in none of those things. And what I have to do in order to redress any imbalance in knowledge and to properly test the opinions they are espousing to the court is I have to read the research articles that I demand of them. I have to search and ask for the research articles they're not bringing to my attention. I have to embrace a subject over the space of weeks and months and sometimes days against experts for whom it's their life's work and coming to court is no more than the continuation of the learning process that they have invested 20 or 30 or 40 years of their professional life in becoming the best of their profession. And I am facing them in the witness box in real time. Unlike in crime, I don't have an expert sitting beside me to tell me when there's a line of cross-examination I can follow or there is a search article that might change the outcome. I don't phone a friend. I can only ask the questions that I have prepared on the medical reports and with the medical knowledge that I have tried to gather and accumulate in order to make sure I properly test that expert's opinion. When we are on our own in that court, bearing the weight of parents' anxieties upon our shoulders, the burden can feel very, very heavy. But I would not have it any other way. I want, if I was ever in difficulty, I would want one of my colleagues to fight as hard for my clients as I do for my own. The world I work in is mucky, sordid, traumatic, and in the main, deeply, deeply sad. There is rarely a happy outcome for a child or a family because whatever has happened in that court process has happened after a period of time where people's lives have been exposed uh, to strangers. But to be a public legal aid lawyer is a vocation. And I cannot commend it highly enough to anyone that wants to delve and to discover and to work out how we function as children and as parents in the society in which we live. So that's my subject area. Um, I hope what I've done at the minimum is try to convey to you the passion with which I have approached my subject. And I hope in particular that what I have done is encouraged you to come back to hear some more of the subjects I'll be dealing with in a little more detail. So the next lecture in November is about one, individuals' individualism, uh, individuals' radicalism and others' right to free speech, and I'll be talking about, talking about cases involving ISIS there. When Legal Worlds Collide is bringing you back to this division between crime and care and how it can be that we have two different jurisdictions dealing with such different issues, but yet they can revolve around the same child at their centre. And then the third is guilty and proven innocent, which is a case involving a child allegedly shaken with multiple fractures to its body, um, but who was um, found to be uh, a victim of a death caused by vitamin D deficiency, seizures, and various other benign causes, but whose parents had gone through hell before being able to... Uh, uh, prove to the court that they were safe to be parents. So they're the first three. I intend to debate and to discuss with you the rights of parents who've got disabilities. And the whole purpose of these lectures is, as I say, to try to start an informed debate because our family justice system will be under threat with cuts coming through. And the less people know what we do 
unless people understand that what there is about the family justice system isn't secrecy for the sake of it, but is a desire to protect the anonymity of the child with protected press publications, then how can I possibly explain to you why it is important that you have lawyers that do this type of work? So please do come along. Um, I'm here for any questions. I've finished on time, which is pretty remarkable. And so um, if you, I don't know what happens next. This is my first lecture. Um, I'll find out. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.